Mark chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 33 through 50. It's a compilation of three stories. So far, Jesus has been teaching his disciples for the last couple of chapters. He's even taken them away on a bit of an educational retreat, trying to show them what it means to live in this kingdom of God. And we come to another instance here where we start scratching our heads and wondering, are the disciples even listening? But then again, the hope is that we would let that reflect back into our hearts and our lives and see, are we the ones who also look at Jesus in the face and then seem to act as if we had never seen him? So let's hear God's word from Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 50. Hear God's word. And when they came to Capernaum, excuse me, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. The disciples once again seem not to understand. The kingdom of God is not about them. The kingdom of God is about the king. It's about Jesus. What I'd like to do before we jump into their obvious errors in the first two stories is I'd like to actually look at the last couple verses. The last couple verses are kind of the summary of what Jesus is trying to teach them here. Starting in verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus charges them to maintain salt 
in themselves, not for themselves, but for the sake of maintaining peace with one another. We're about to find out that is exactly what they were not doing in, this in, in these two instances. To be salted with fire is a mixing of two metaphors. It's not immediately clear what was intended, but once you understand that the salt is good, as Jesus tells them, and you realize the fire is actually the fire of purification, not the fire of consuming wrath. What is being said is that every one of Christ's children, every one of Christ's followers, will be seasoned through trials. The fire of purification will come, and you will be seasoned with salt, with wisdom, with gracious dealings, so that you might be at peace with others. And what that means is that they're going to have to endure hard things. Believers are not promised an easy life, but instead a life of fire of purification where we will be tried. Now, this is nothing new. Because Jesus so far has been teaching them already that to follow him means that you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross to follow him. Jesus, right before this, predicted his death and his resurrection. Again, for the second time. He predicted his death and resurrection. And that's where we find ourselves today. The first downplaying, if you will, that the disciples commit is that they downplay the glory of Christ and replace it with their own glory. The disciples were arguing here in verses 33 through 37 about who was the greatest. Remember, Jesus had just said, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. Maybe they finally listened when Jesus said, I'm going to die. And now they're arguing about who's going to replace him. Who's going to be the next leader? That would explain why they were silent when Jesus asked them, what were you talking about? It's embarrassing. Unfortunately, it's probably even more likely that they once again misunderstood what Jesus had just said about a life of suffering and a life of sacrifice. And they still think that following Christ is going to lead to their greatness and their success and their ease and their power and their kingdom. And so they once again are arguing over who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom once Jesus leads them into power. Because as Jesus has been trying to combat for the last nine chapters is this misconception that the Messiah is going to be a nationalistic military ruler. But the disciples seem to still be stuck on that. Whether or not the disciples understood that Jesus was going to have to die and that the kingdom was defined by selflessness we realize they're living in a culture that had strong obsession with rank. There were seats of honor. There were associations and more. Some rabbis even discussed who would sit closest to God in his throne room. The rabbis, the religious leaders, arguing over who was going to sit closest to God. Jesus explains the reverse paradigm here in this passage. It's not about climbing your way to the top. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. There in verse 35. He's saying this kingdom is the opposite of what you'd expect. First place comes by becoming last place. Jesus illustrated humility right here in this moment by welcoming a child. He says they had gone back into the house, probably Peter and Andrew's house. It is potentially one of their children standing 
on the periphery, and Jesus says, come here. He took a child, verse 36, and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So to receive a child is to welcome God, the Father. The child is not lauded for being immature. The child here represents somebody that is the opposite of what the disciples had been arguing about. They're wondering who's the greatest. And Jesus says, actually, on the cultural scale, on the social scale, let me bring in the least important, a child. And if you can learn to embrace one such as this, you will be first in the kingdom. It's the total opposite of the cultural games they had been playing. To live in the kingdom of God is to welcome, embrace, and care for the ones who give nothing to us because we are exactly those ones who Jesus embraced, who were nothing, who could offer nothing to him, who had no social power to attribute to him by association. And only by embracing a child do we show that we have received what Christ has given to us. And then only by embracing Christ do we have any hope of drawing near to the Father, because no one comes to the Father except by Jesus. And we know that Jesus didn't just give them an illustration here in verses 36 and 37. Jesus' whole life was defined by this kind of humility. Jesus, the, the very fact that he was there among his disciples, he had already condescended to those who are even lower than children. The descent from the throne room of heaven to being a man is a far greater descent than the grandest king embracing a child. Jesus descended, to, condescended to be with his people. He embraced the least of these. By choosing not the great religious leaders to be his followers, he chose the fishermen and the tax collector and the unimpressive. Nobody who gave him any social success. Jesus came from a place of indescribable honor and glory and position and authority, and he gave those up, making himself nothing, becoming like us. And then Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He bore the mockery of the lowly ones to whom he had condescended, and he bore their sin in his body on the tree. And so doing, he powerfully accomplished salvation for his people as he gave himself up as the substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of his people. He descended to the place of the dead and he did rise on the third day and he became the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. And he is seated at the right hand of the father in glory. So by becoming the lowest of the low, even to the point of death, he has been exalted to the highest place of honor. And that is exactly what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God is to expect to be brought low, to embrace those that nobody else embraces and to know that that is what Christ, Christ's kingdom and his reign are all about as he then carries his people to God. So this argument over which one of the disciples is the greatest totally misses the point. They don't understand that this is about what Jesus is doing. It's not about their exaltation. So we have to be honest. Every single one of us tries to seek our own honor 
and glory. We want people to think well of us, and we all do it in various ways. If we only care for our selfish status climbing, then we can try to claw our way to the top of our friend group, our business, our social image, our social media platforms, or even church. We can use whatever it is and try to claw our way to the top. But if you care about Jesus' mission and about Jesus' kingdom, and if you want then to be like Christ and mirror how he powerfully saved his people, you go to the lowly, the ones who offer you nothing in return, the ones that don't make you look better and in fact might make you look worse. And that's because you have seen yourself, like Paul did, as the chief of sinners, the worst of us all, the neediest of all. And then only once you've realized that it is in the place of need and lowliness that you are properly suited to receive God's grace, then you are saved. And then once you have Christ's spirit dwelling in you, you can graciously embrace the least of all people as Christ embraced you. And once you've done that, it's clear you've embraced Christ, and by so doing, you have welcomed the Father and will be in his presence for eternity. There is no other way to get to the Father, to the place of highest honor and beauty, than to descend to the depths of humility and confession and honesty about ourselves, and to there embrace what the humbled Savior gives, forgiveness of our sins and life everlasting. The disciples continue in verse 38. Another grave misunderstanding. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He was probably expecting an attaboy. Way to get him. But Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't stop him. What they were thinking was that Jesus was building this movement so that they might be glorified. He says he was not following us. He was not following us. He didn't say he wasn't following you, Jesus. He says he wasn't following us. He was still concerned, thinking that Christ was here to build them up. Jesus says, no one He says, do not stop him. Why? Because no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. He actually gives three reasons. Each one starts with the word for. No one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. We know that this man who was casting out a demon that the disciples encountered had at least some familiarity with Jesus because he had cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Now, was he familiar enough with Jesus to have known all his teachings and to be following him closely? We don't know. In fact, it's kind of implied that he was not all that familiar because Jesus says that if someone does cast out in in Jesus's name, then he cannot for much longer speak evil of Jesus. So maybe the man had been speaking evil of Jesus, yet was casting out demons in Jesus's name. So even if he was doing it maliciously, we know that the name in this instance, as the authority of Christ was being confirmed by these signs, we know that the name of Jesus was powerful, that Jesus's uh, spirit was at work. Yet we don't know the name of this man, but what remains of his legacy? The authority of Christ was at work. The kingdom of God was advancing. 
the demons that he had cast out, the, the pawns, if you will, of the kingdom of darkness were being pushed back. And we don't know that man's name because he had done it in the name of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. And Jesus says, because the one who is not against us is for us. The exorcist wasn't negating Christ's message in his work. Only the disciples' pride was hurt in this. So therefore, as the Spirit worked through him, through this man, to shine the kingdom of God into the darkness of that place, he was for Christ. Now, the disciples might have been a little bit embarrassed here. Because you'll also remember last chapter, or earlier in this chapter, there was a public display of how they could not cast out a certain demon. And so now here comes another guy who looks better than they do. And they once again are having to be humbled, realizing it's not about them. Jesus' third answer is this, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to the name of Christ, our English translations say because you belong to Christ, but originally the original language says because you belong to the name of Christ, you will by no means, he will by no means lose his reward. Even the smallest acts of hospitality, giving water, it was expected that you would give water to somebody in that culture, a culture of hospitality. Even that smallest action, if done in the name of Christ, earns a reward. But if you go and do the greatest signs in your name, there's no reward in that. It's about doing it in the name of Christ for the glory of Jesus, out of the grace that he has given to his people. It's not about our name. It's about Jesus' name. His is the name that is above every name. His is the name in which we will stand before the Father on that last day because in our own names, we will stand condemned. His is the name that identifies His people above any other allegiance. We have all kinds of allegiances, sports teams, businesses, job titles, the, the degrees you've earned, the businesses on your resume, your political party, all these allegiances, none of them matters. In light of the name of Christ, his name should be more of more concern to us than our name or any earthly name. There is a religious building in Cuyahoga Falls, a cathedral at the bottom of a tower with the name of a man on the side of it. It was an empire for decades across the region and on television across the world. In recent years, there have been billboard campaigns enshrining his face on the billboards. After 90-some years of building this kingdom with his name on it, let me be blunt, he's dead. That kingdom does not last. By God's grace, he didn't let the disciples continue in their misunderstandings. By God's grace, he was teaching them, don't build your kingdom, it won't last. It's about my glory, my name. And by God's grace, I pray he doesn't let any one of us keep building kingdoms for our name and for our glory and for our honor. This gathering, this place is called Christ Presbyterian Church. His name is first and foremost. This pulpit is for the exaltation of his name. Our gatherings for the worship of his grace. And every week we can say from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Would our Mondays through Saturdays also be for his name? 
So we've seen these two grave misunderstandings on the part of the disciples. And we realize we have the same tendencies in our hearts to seek our own glory and to forget that this is all about Christ. But Jesus wraps up here our passage for today with a very important principle, a very important lesson. It's a whole perspective shift. And the point is this. Life is eternal. Our perspective needs to be on eternity. He says, you've been concerned about these fruitless things. Your greatness, your reputation as a group. Let me show you what really matters is what he's talking, is what he seems to be saying here. And he's saying it, it's, it's holiness. The kingdom of God doesn't grow in these temporary greatnesses that you pursue, but in these subtle, almost undetectable ways in your heart, beginning inside his people. He says, don't seek your name on the banner of the kingdom of God. Seek instead that your heart looks more like Christ every day. Once again, there was this conversation of who's the greatest versus Jesus then showed them a child, the least great by cultural standards. There's a return here to that language here. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, little ones, this is not actually a reference to children. This is a reference to those who are the least in the kingdom. If you cause the most unimportant person, and I say that, of course, from a worldly perspective, because there is no unimportant person to Christ. But if you go to the world's least important person and cause him to sin, many would say, what's the big deal? Who are they? But Jesus says, it would be better if you had a donkey's millstone, a big one, hung around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause even the world's least important person to stumble. There is a much greater perspective. There's a focus that's missing on the disciples' part. And then he also moves on and says, it's not just about causing others to sin. It's about sinning yourself. Look at the things that you do. If your hand causes you to sin or causes you to stumble, Jesus says, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. Hell is the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If we're building our greatness, we don't care about the little things that offend God because they might contribute to our greatness. But if we care about the kingdom of God as Christ has presented it, we will put to death every little deed, as small as it seems, knowing that every little thing makes us guilty of hellfire. There are sins of the hand. The things that we do, we must examine and see, would it be better for us to stop doing that thing, it's worth taking great measures to stop ourselves from sinning. What about the places that we go? If our foot causes us to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life, to enter eternal life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. What about those secret sins? The sins of the heart, the sins of the eyes, the things that we let ourselves long for. If our eye causes us to sin, tear it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God one-eyed than with two eyes to go into hell. 
Yet how often are we willing to say no to ourselves and our desires? Not very often. The only way that you and I are going to be able to stand in eternity with all these little sins added up against us on our account is if we are in the name of Jesus. The only way is if we have given up on building our greatness, building our resume, trying to look holy on our own, and we take the holiness that the great condescender has given to us. The one who humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross to take our sin. He bore the wrath that we deserved so that we don't have to go into hell with two eyes or two hands or two feet. Let us see all the ways that Jesus has cared for the insignificant ones like us. The little ones. He's embraced us. He's carried us to the Father. Let us exalt His name because there is no other name that will save us. Let us seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Let us seek to be like Him. Seek the purity of our lives and of the church and therefore of His reputation in this world so that others might see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. As the young minister said, he died at the age of 29. Robert Murray McShane, he says, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. We would all do well to remember that this week.